Today, we're going to focus a lot more on managing a healthcare crisis, what to do if you or a loved one actually find yourself needing care um, and needing maybe needing care a lot sooner than what you expected. So we're going to go over different strategies that might, may or may not be a possibility for you in those different scenarios. Like Kyle said, my name's Jenna Franks. I'm one of the attorneys here. I work primarily out of the state college office. Kristen and I work together as a team to make sure that we're meeting all of your legal and um, more of your government benefit type needs. Um, I am also a mom. I have a 10 year old and a five month old. So life is a little crazy for me too at this point in time. But um, uh, go ahead, Kristen, if you wanna introduce yourself as well. Sure, sure. My name's Kristen. I am a long-term care planner and a certified Medicaid planner. I am also a certified dementia practitioner and a certified Alzheimer's disease and dementia care trainer. Um, so I work with Jenna and the other attorneys at the office for families when we're preparing um, for the crisis, when we're in the crisis or we're preparing um, and implementing strategies to protect against long-term care costs. Mm -hmm. So today, um, if you've listened to any of our seminars before, you're gonna say, hey, this seems a little backwards. Usually Jenna starts off our presentation, but today I'm gonna to dive right in. We're gonna start off talking about long-term care. What is long-term care? What, um, what are the costs? What are your options? And then Jenna's gonna come in for the second half and she's gonna talk about the essential estate planning documents that everybody needs to have. So making a statement here, getting started, <laughs> average cost of long-term care. In Pennsylvania, the average cost of long-term care is $10,732.83 each month. That is for that skilled level of care. That's a lot of money. You could see how you could quickly become impoverished paying for your care. So if you need long-term care, how do you pay for it? You can certainly pay for long-term care out of pocket, but again, as we see it, over $10,000 a month, you could qu quickly deplete all of your assets or that nest egg that you've worked so hard to build. Long-term care insurance. So long-term care insurance is a great option, but it's not an option for everyone. It's really important to know if you do have long-term care insurance or you're considering purchasing long-term care insurance, that you really understand what your policy offers. For instance, is there an elimination period? So if you need care, is there a period of time before the policy starts paying? A lot of times we see a 60 or a 90 day period of, of um, elimination period before the policy actually starts to pay. So that would be a private pay situation for that period of time. What is the maximum daily payout? So how much per day does it pay for? Is it $100 a day? Is it $300 a day? And a lot of policies we see are older policies that offer about $100 a day, which when purchased probably was enough. But at $352 a day average cost of long-term care, you could see there's still a shortfall there. What does it cover? 
Does it cover home care? Does it um, cover nursing home care, personal home care? What does it actually cover? That's really important to know also, because it's always really hard when Jenna and I have to be the bearers of bad news and say, um, no, this actually doesn't provide in-home care or it doesn't provide this when you've paid all the money and you thought you knew what it covered. Also, what's the maximum benefit? So if you go into a nursing home and you're claiming on the maximum amount, is the, it a three-year policy? Is it a five-year? Um, once in a great while, we'll see those unlimited policies. They don't sell those anymore, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but just knowing what that policy actually covers is really great. If you're thinking that long-term care insurance might be an option for you, you should definitely check it out. It's a great, great benefit. And there's newer, more like hybrid type policies now that are great options too. And the difference is with the traditional long-term care insurance policies, it's if you never used it because you passed away before you needed care or you never needed care, all that money you paid into it is gone. The hybrid policies that are now available actually work kind of like a life insurance policy where you can use it for long-term care insurance during your life if you need it. But if you don't, there's a death benefit for your spouse or your beneficiary. So that adds a nice little option and it makes people feel a little more comfortable with what they're purchasing. Mm -hmm. Veterans benefits. So if you, you yourself are a veteran or you're a spouse of a veteran or a widow of a veteran, you can be eligible for a compensation or a pension. So a compensation is awarded for somebody, for a veteran specifically, that is, um, was injured during his or her wartime service or has an injury or illness now that can be related back to their wartime service. Like there's certain types of cancers, Parkinson's disease, Agent Orange, things that can be related back that you could now receive a compensation for. There's also a non-service connected pension, which we deal with a lot more often. So this is the one that if you're a veteran or a spouse or a widow of a veteran and you need some type of care, you could qualify for up to around $2,000 a month from the Veterans Administration to help pay for that cost of care. The criteria is you have to have some sort of medical condition um, the VA also says once you're 65, you are automatically um, classified as having some sort of medical condition. It's just, it's kind of laughable because 65 is very, very young. Um, so if 65 or have some sort of medical condition, you also have to have some sort of care need. So in home or in some sort of facility that your income doesn't cover. So the care cost needs to be more than your income. There are also some asset thresholds with the veterans benefits. There's also gifting rules that now apply for veterans benefits. Um, a couple years ago, we could shift assets one day and qualify for the VA pension the next day. We can't do that anymore. They've imposed a gifting penalty, um, similar to what they do for Medicaid, which we're gonna talk about today. But it is a very, very, very good benefit for a veteran, a spouse, or a widow. Medicare. So it's always really important. I feel like it's really important to spend a few minutes talking about Medicare. So Medicare is a federal health insurance program for individuals 65 or older or under 65 with certain disabilities. So Medicare is a fantastic program and a benefit, but how does it actually relate to long-term care? 
Medicare was not designed to be a long-term solution for nursing home or in-home care. For Medicare to even kick in to pay for nursing home care, you must have a qualifying three-night stay in a hospital. That's really hard to get. It's really hard to get three nights admitted. They have observation beds now, and you know, they don't keep you very often. You know, I, I, I know Jenna Kyle is tired of hearing this story, but um, you know, my youngest is five, and when he was born, he was born at 11.56 p.m., that was a night in the hospital. Like they actually asked me if I wanted to hold off to get to the next day. And I was like, nope. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, so it's really hard. So that was a night. So I barely had, you know, that, that time there at the hospital. And so when, let's say you do um, get that three-day qualifying stay, you move into a nursing home, and now we want Medicare to help pay for that. <clears throat> Medicare pays up to 100 days for skilled care per year. Up to is the key words here. It's very, very important. Very, very, very rarely do we see individuals who receive 100 days of Medicare coverage in a skilled nursing home. The few times I've seen it is individuals essentially on a vent. They need that extra care. Days one through 20, there's no copay with your Medicare. After day 20, if you still qualify, then there is a copay. A lot of times your supplemental health insurance plan is going to cover that, so you don't even realize there's a copay, but not always. So it's always important to know when we go into open enrollment for our supplemental health insurance plan that you know what your supplemental health plan covers as far as long-term care and working with Medicare. So very, very, very important to know that Medicare is not going to be a long-term solution. Most people get around 20 days or so when they move into a nursing home. So this is good information for y'all to know because it's, it helps you plan a little more accordingly. If Jenna and I get a phone call from you on day one of admission into a nursing home for your loved one, we're 20 days ahead of you, instead of you calling on day 20 saying, oh my gosh, I just got a notice from the nursing home. I'm private pay tomorrow. And by the way, they just handed me a $10,000 bill. What do I do? So as soon as you know that you or a loved one are going to move into a nursing home or you move there, the sooner you make the call to us, the better we can um, be prepared to help you. So Medicaid, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about Medicaid. It's a very confusing program. Um, Medicaid can mean a lot of different things. It's kind of like an umbrella and it has all these different sections and categories underneath of it. So, you know, Medicaid covers things such as um, food stamps. It provides for, you know, low-income families. It provides for children. The Medicaid we focus on, though, is for long-term care. And long-term care can be in a skilled nursing home or it can be in your home. So Medicaid is a state and federal program that pays for care in Pennsylvania, and it's administered by the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services. Most people needing long-term long care eventually qualify for Medicaid, and about two-thirds of nursing home residents actually receive Medicaid benefits. So what does Medicaid actually pay for? It pays for nursing home, that's skilled nursing home care, not all skilled nursing homes, though, accept Medicaid. So that's something to be aware of. Also pays for in-home care under the Aging Waiver Program. 
Now I'm just going to take a little break here. I just want to talk about the aging waiver program here. And I, I feel like Sandy's probably giving me the eyes to make sure I'm going to do a good job here. <laughs> um, yeah. Before you get into that, um, back to veterans benefits, is there VA gifting? Is there a time frame for that? A look there back is. It's a three-year look back. Um, the, it's a three-year look back for veterans benefits, for the gifting, for the pension. But I'll tell you, the penalty is really harsh, how they figure out how long you won't qualify for. Um, we've yet to run into a situation where it just didn't make sense that if you could wait three years, just gift whatever you needed to gift and wait three years. Um, with Medicaid, there's sometimes some options. So great question. Anything else? I can't see the chat box, so tell me if there's something. Nope, nope, that was it. Okay. <laughs> I got my eye on it. <laughs> Thank you. I have my share, screen shared, so I can't see that. So. Nope. Um, so I always think it's so important to take a little bit of time and talk about the aging waiver program, because so many people don't actually know about it. Um, before I worked for the law firm, I actually worked for the Lake Homing Clinton Area Agency on Aging, and I worked with the waiver program. It's evolved so much <laughs> since that time. It used to be, and I know Sandy is right here with me. When I worked with that program, um, it was actually really simple for people. They called us, we went out, we did the <laughs> assessment, we, we did our care plan, and two weeks later, they had services in their home. Mm -hmm. It can now take anywhere from three to six months to get the care, and it's such a disservice. We lost you again. Can you hear me? Are you there? Is that better? Yeah. 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 Okay. Kyle jinxed me. <laughs> it's, it's such a disservice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, it's such a disservice that takes so long to get the services in place. And it's really um, not the agencies or the frontline people that we're working with. It's not their fault at all. This is a state um, decision and process. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't think it works real well, but um, I am not here to um, tell you if I like the rules or not, but I'm here to help you figure out how to get qualified for these <laughs> programs. So the Aging Waiver Program is a Medicaid-funded program. It's an option to keep people home instead of needing that skilled nursing home care. Now, first, you have to be assessed as nursing facility clinically eligible. That is a level of care assessment. That, is, that assessment, it doesn't mean you have to move in a nursing home. It means that you need that highest level of care. If you are assessed as nursing facility clinically eligible, then you have to meet the income and asset guidelines for Medicaid, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. The aging waiver program, or I guess it's community health choices waiver now, um, they've also changed the name a few times, right, Sandy, over the years? <laughs> <laughs> um, they, um, it provides caregivers to come into your home. It's not necessarily going to be skilled care, but it's going to be homemakers that can come in and help with things such as bathing and dressing and grooming, meal assistant, respite, services like that. But I'm going to be honest, it's not 24 hour a day care. Everybody's plan looks a little bit different. Some people, it might be five hours a day. Some people might be every, just a couple days a week. Some might have more care than that. I've seen a lot of variation within these care plans. I do think what we're going to continue to see though is less and less services being available, unfortunately, um, due to budgetary issues with the state. But 
it is a good option. And I always like to spend a few minutes talking about it. So people just know there's options out there. Okay. So back to the presentation. So Medicaid, what does Medicaid not pay for? Um, in Pennsylvania, it does not pay for senior living or personal care homes. So if you move to a place like, let's say, Harmony or Elmcroft, um, a personal care home, Medicaid is not going to cover. That is going to be private pay. Most in-home care also is private pay. Medicaid is not going to cover. So let's dive into what the income and asset guidelines are for Medicaid. It is an impoverishment program. So we, um, the goal is to see what we can do to get you qualified. Even though it's an impoverishment program though, doesn't mean you actually have to be, necessarily have to be impoverished. There's strategies that we can implement and everybody's situation is really different and how we would actually implement those strategies. And you know what a lot of we a lot of what we do at our office is sheltering assets for the spouse or future generations. But honestly, a lot of times what we're doing is actually working with families so they can get these benefits. So as Sandy could tell you, it's actually kind of hard to qualify for the in-home care under the waiver program. There's the guidelines are really, really strict, but there's strategies that Jenna and I can help with. If, if, you know, they say you're over income or over asset thresholds, there's things we can do because we want you to stay at home. If you can stay home safely, we want to be able to help you obtain that. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look here. So when we're dealing with Medicaid, there's asset guidelines, but they're based on your income. So the income this year limit is $2,349. That's your gross income before any deductions. If your income is less than $2,349, you can keep $8,000 in assets. If your gross income exceeds $2,349, then you can only keep $2,400 in assets. The income that we're looking at for Medicaid is always only for the applicant. So it's not both spouses if you're married, it's just the applicant. Now, in a spousal situation, and Pennsylvania is pretty fair compared to a lot of other states when it comes to spousals, spousal situations, what happens is we're, we total up all the assets that are available, and that's our next slide we're going to dive into, and they say the spouse that doesn't need care gets to keep half of the assets. However, they put a cap on it. So the cap of this year is $128,640. So what that means is, let's talk a scenario. If you have $150,000 in a marital situation, one spouse needs care, we divide that in half and $75,000 is um, apportioned to each spouse. But let's say we have $300,000 in marital assets. If we divide that in half, that's 150,000 to each spouse. But the state of Pennsylvania is gonna say, well, that's actually over the maximum. The spouse that doesn't need care only gets to keep $128,000. Now there's also ways to protect for individuals in a situation where their resources might look a lot different. So we work with plenty of families that they have their house and maybe they just have a bank account with like $25,000. Well, 
Well, here's the good news. We don't have to split those assets in half in that situation. If those assets, not including the house, are less than $25,728, there's immediate eligibility for the spouse and they get to keep all of those assets. We don't have to do moving around of those. So there are some ways and there's a lot of flexibility there. So what is actual countable assets? If you move into a nursing home or want Medicaid to pay for your in-home care, what are we actually looking at? It's important to know in a spousal situation, pretty much everything's available, no matter how it's titled. There are a few exceptions. But what is countable? Any type of bank accounts that you have, CDs, savings bonds, stocks, mutual funds, Life insurance policies with cash values, those cash values are available for your nursing home care. So really important to protect those life insurance policies so you don't lose that death benefit. Cash on hand. Now I'm not too worried about the 20 or $50 in your wallet, but if you have you know, a couple thousand dollars shoved it under your mattress, then I'm really worried about that. <laughs> That's something we have to report. Annuities, retirement accounts, of the applicant. This is one of the exceptions to spousal situations. If I need nursing home care and I have an IRA, it's available for my nursing home care. But if my husband has an IRA, he does not have to cash in his IRA to pay for nursing home care, my nursing home care. So his is protected against my nursing home care. And I know there's a lot of families that, um, that we work with that they, a lot of their assets are held in retirement. So that is a nice um, exception that we can you know, keep those assets tucked away. Now we have to look at the beneficiaries then and make sure they still make sense, but that's part of the process. Um, motor vehicles over one. When you're applying for Medicaid, one vehicle is exempt. Any other vehicles are countable resources. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of them. We just have to work it into um, the spend down and the qualifications. Trust accounts that the applicant can access. Jenna's actually gonna touch on this in a little bit, um, but if, it, if you have a revocable trust, revocable, it's not gonna work for nursing home or long-term care protection. We're gonna dive into that here in a few minutes. <clears throat> Non-residential property. Real estate gets really tricky when we're dealing with Medicaid. If you own your home, it's not available for your nursing home care. You can keep that property and qualify for Medicaid during your life. However, after you pass away, if that property is still in your name, the state of Pennsylvania will come back and place an estate recovery claim against that property to the extent they've paid for your care. The good news is there's strategies and things that we can do, even if you're already in a nursing home, to protect that property. Okay, let's see here. So non-countable. I'm sorry, let me go back to the property. I got ahead of myself there. Um, other property though, let's talk about that. So if you have other property other than your primary residence, that is most likely available for your nursing home care. So if you have a cabin, a vacant lot, um, those are probably available and accountable resource. There's things that we can do to protect those properties though, and it is really important. 
because we do work with a lot of families who actually are real estate heavy. So they might not have a lot of assets, but they have a lot of real estate. So in a situation like that, they could be forced to have to sell those to pay for their nursing home or in-home care. But there are things that you can certainly do so, to protect those properties. So what's not countable when we're dealing with Medicaid for in-home or nursing home care? One vehicle's not available retirement accounts of the spouse that doesn't need care, irrevocable trust, again, we're gonna dive into that in a few minutes, household belongings, irrevocable burial accounts, cemetery lots, life insurance that doesn't have a cash value, like a term life insurance, a group life insurance policy, they don't have a cash value, so they're not available. Life insurance with face values less than $1,500. So this would be if you have a policy and let's say the face value is $1,500 or $1,000. As long as that's the only policy that you have, regardless of the cash value, this, those policies can be exempt. So that's a nice extra way just to tuck aside those policies. We talked a little bit about your primary residence, how it's not countable, but we have to be aware of the estate recovery if we don't do something with it. Income producing property, which is essential to the applicant's self-support. So if you own rental properties or you have a business that's income producing, we can exempt those properties when you apply for Medicaid. So they're not available. So you get the immediate benefit for Medicaid to help pay for your nursing home or in-home care. However, we still have to be aware of that a state recovery claim. So we still have to do something with the property to make sure it's not available after you pass away. Okay. So as I mentioned, Pennsylvania is pretty fair when it comes to spousal protection. There are ways that we can almost immediately qualify an individual for Medicaid for in-home or nursing home care while protecting almost all of the assets for the spouse that doesn't need care. So that's always really great. And I, I think it's so important because I never want a spouse or anybody really to feel like they, they're impoverished paying for their nursing, their spouse's care. They're going to lose their home or, you know, they can't live their life how they want to. It's already hard enough when we have to place our loved one in a nursing home or they need some sort of care at home. Our job is to make sure that we are make, allowing them to live their life to the best of their ability without the fear of becoming impoverished. So there is a five-year look back and most of us have probably heard about that. Um, so what a five-year look back is, if you're asking Medicaid to pay for your nursing home or in-home care, the state of Pennsylvania is going to ask if you've made any gifts in the last five years. A gift is anything over $500 a month when we're dealing with Medicaid. A lot of people think, wait, I thought it was $15,000 or $12,000. That's actually something different. That's for federal estate gifts. For Medicaid, anything over $500 a month is a gift. Cash, checks, real estate, vehicles, anything that you give away and do not receive fair market value. So how they determine how they're not, the state's not going to pay for your care. It doesn't mean, just because you make gifts doesn't mean they're not going to pay care for your care for five years. But it means there is going to be a period of ineligibility. So they take the average cost of nursing home care, which is at $10,732, 
And for every $10,732 you give away, it's one month the state will not pay for your nursing home or in-home care. So let me give you an example. So let's say we give our house, we gift our house, and we need nursing home within five years of that gift. That's 9.3 months the state of Pennsylvania will not pay for our nurse, nursing home or in-home care. So if you have other assets, that might not be a big deal. You can privately pay for that care during that 9.3 month penalty. But what if your house was your only asset and you gave it away? And now you need care unexpectedly because unfortunately we never know who's gonna get sick first or when you're gonna get sick or when that crisis is going to hit. What we're running into is nursing homes in our area, they, they're busy. They have a huge waiting list and it could be months and months and months for, a, for an ideal person to move in. But then you've said to the nursing home, oh yeah, I've made gifts. And they're gonna say, well, how are you gonna pay for it? Well, I don't know. You're going to the bottom of that list. They might flat out actually refuse to admit you. So now we have a situation where somebody needs care because their loved ones can't take care of them anymore, but the nursing homes don't wanna accept them because they know they're not going to be get paid for a certain period of time before Medicaid kicks in. Now, we don't say this to scare you because a lot of what Jenna and I do is gifting. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But when you're making gifts, you have to do it very strategically and in a way that's not going to impact you if you need care in the future. So we always get asked, well, can I just add my children's name to my assets? So we all used to just know we gave our house to our child for a dollar. It used to be the strategy. We don't do that. Jenna and I really do not do that because, of the, because it still creates a Medicaid ineligibility period. So we still have that period of time where Medicaid won't pay, but also because of the four Ds, divorce, debt, disability, and debt. What happens if we give our house to our child and they get divorced? What happens if they have creditors? What happens if they become disabled? Or what happens if that child passes away? There's a lot of risks associated with outright gifting. Talking about gifting though, in that five-year look back, there are a few exceptions. One of the exceptions is if you have a child who is under the age of 21 years old, you can actually gift everything to that child and it will not create a penalty from where, for where Medicaid will pay for your care. Now, with that being said, most of us aren't going to wanna actually just transfer all of our assets to a child under the age of 21 years old. So we'd actually create a trust called a children's trust, it's a special trust to put those assets in for the benefit of the child um, while getting you qualified for Medicaid to pay for your care. It's really sad, Jenna and I have actually had some situations like this um, with minor children. Um, people are getting diagnosed with dementia earlier, Parkinson's, these tick-borne illnesses. It's really, really, really sad. Another exception to the transfer penalty is for a child who is blind or has a disability. Now this, a child's very broad. It can be a child of any age. It could be a 70-year-old child, a 50-year-old, 40-year-old child. If your child's disabled according to social security standards, we can gift your assets to them, not create a Medicaid ineligibility period, and get you qualified for Medicaid. 
Same thing though with the, uh, the minor child. We don't want to gift assets to those individuals outright because it would disrupt their benefits. So we could create a special needs trust or supplemental needs trust and gift assets into that trust to protect everybody. The last exception, which is probably the one we use most often, is the caregiver child. If your child has moved in with you, made your house their residence for at least two years prior to, their, to your admission into a skilled nursing home, we can deed your primary residence to that child without creating an ineligibility period. This is a really great exception because some children are giving up everything, their home to move in to keep you home. Um, so the state does acknowledge that and allows us to transfer the house to, to that child without a penalty. Now we have to get some paperwork around, the doctor has to sign something, we have to be able to prove that you've lived there, but it's really a great exception and a great um, reward really for that caregiver child. So how can we protect our assets? There's a lot of different strategies that we can implement and everybody's situation looks so different. Prepaid burial arrangements or funeral arrangements, a great way to tuck away assets. Nobody wants to go and pre-plan their funeral, I know it, but it is something we all unfortunately need at some point in time and it is a good avenue to stick assets, set assets aside. Um, transfer assets to um, trust, irrevocable trust. And that's what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Planned gifting. So like Jenna and I said, or I said, Jenna and I do every day, we do gifting all the time. We just have to have a plan that makes sense. And Medicaid compliant annuities. Annuities are um, a strategy that we implement a lot. We use them for a couple different reasons. Um, most often in spousal situations to create that immediate eligibility eligibility. It's a very, very specific type of annuity that we have to use, a Medicaid compliant annuity, and it has to be used very um, in a very specific manner, but it's a great tool. So with that, we're going to dive into trust because it's really important that we spend a little time talking about them because everybody's heard about trust, but there's a lot of different trust and they serve a lot of different purpose. So we have to make sure that we talk about why we use irrevocable trust and how they work. So Jenna? Yeah, sure. I'm actually going to start off with a disclaimer, letting you guys know that uh, we use these irrevocable asset protection trusts uh, day in and day out, but these don't necessarily make sense for everybody's situation. Um, it really depends on what, how much in assets you have, what types of assets you have, what your health looks like, what your, your family or your beneficiary uh, scheme looks like. So um, a lot of times what I'll hear is, you know, hey, so-and-so, my neighbor down the street has this trust and it works this way and it does this and that, you know, I think I want the same thing. And then, you know, we'll have to get more information on your background, you know, what exactly your goals are. And a lot, I would say at least nine times out of 10, that same type of trust probably isn't what you're looking for. You know, a, a trust might make sense, but it, we might want to structure it a little bit differently uh, based on what your neighbor had. So there's lots of different reasons or objectives for establishing trust. Asset protection or protection against the costs of long-term care, that's just one, that's just one reason for establishing a trust. A lot of people, they would like to avoid the probate process. I will tell you the in Pennsylvania, it's not really that costly to go through the probate process. It's usually a couple hundred dollars. 
I, I also practiced in Florida. It's very different there. Um, it costs a lot more money and it's a lot more time consuming to go through the probate process there. So pretty much everybody in Florida has some type of a trust to avoid the probate process. But here in Pennsylvania, sometimes it can make things a little bit easier if you use a trust to avoid probate. Sometimes it can save you some time, make things a lot easier on whoever's administering administering your estate. We already mentioned trust for long-term care protection. Controlled gifting. Um, maybe you've saved up a nice nest egg and you don't want, you know, maybe you have one child and you don't want that one child to receive all the money at one time once you pass away. Maybe you'd like to spread that out over time or, um, you know, have, have money go to multiple beneficiaries once they reach certain ages or um, once they uh, need it for education or something like that. Trusts actually give you the ability to spread out inheritances over time. Your wills can't typically do that as easily. Um, reducing exposure to federal estate tax. This is not really a big issue for most people right now just because the exemption for federal estate tax is about $11 million per person. So as long as your estate is less than $11 million, this isn't a big issue for any of us. Um, now that, that number, the laws are supposed to actually sunset in the year 2025. We anticipate that that number, that exemption amount, will go back down to about seven or $8 million. But still, if your estate's not necessarily close to that number, this is probably not a good reason for you to um, set up a trust because federal estate taxes are not going to be a big issue for you. If you or a loved one has special needs or is on, some, is on disability, um, receiving some sort of government benefits, and you want them to receive an inheritance once you pass away, we should probably talk about setting up a special needs trust so that once you pass away, that loved one isn't kicked off the benefits that they're receiving because they receive an inheritance. A lot of times, um, their benefits are income or asset um, conditions, so we really have to look at, you know, would receiving an inheritance from you kick them off those benefits? Because a lot of times those benefits are really, really important. They, they cover a lot in medical expenses or housing expenses, so we want to make sure that they don't lose those valuable benefits. And then lastly, a lot of times trust can just help with the general management of assets uh, once you would pass away. There's also lots of different types of trusts. I'm just touching on a couple of those different types of trusts here. I don't wanna bog you down or overwhelm you with a lot of this trust information. I just kinda of want you to understand what type of trust we're talking about when we're talking about planning for long-term care and asset protection. So there's, there's grantor, non-grantor, revocable or irrevocable. In asset protection trusts, Asset protection trusts are irrevocable trusts in Pennsylvania. I'll touch on that here again in a minute. And then there's also special needs trusts for more of those individuals that have special needs or you anticipate will be on government benefits at some point in time because they have a disability that um, they might need those benefits for at some point in time. So grantor versus non-grantor. This is really just something for you to understand tax-wise. So if we would transfer some of your assets into what's called a grantor trust, and this is usually the type of trust that we like to use, what that means is everything gets taxed through to your personal income tax return. So it makes things a lot easier when it comes to income taxes. So everything, we use your social security number as the tax identification number. Um, it, 
it's very nice and easy when it comes to income taxes. Um, sometimes it might make sense to use what's called a non-grantor trust. What that means is it's, it's a separate entity when it comes to income tax purposes. We would have to actually get a separate uh, employer identification number for the trust, almost like it's a person. And this, the, the trust would actually get taxed at the trust tax rates. Sometimes that makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. I will tell you, even though you might pay more in tax in income taxes for a non-grantor trust, a lot of times we like to use these to avoid Pennsylvania inheritance tax. So that's, that's something that's really important when you're doing this type of planning. You know, you might be trying to avoid one type of tax and you might run into another tax. So you definitely wanna make sure that you're working with professionals in doing this type of planning so that you can plan for those different types of taxes. Revocable versus irrevocable. I will tell you all that if we're doing planning for long-term care or asset protection, we're always talking about irrevocable trusts. Only irrevocable trusts in Pennsylvania offer protection against creditors like the nursing home or the state. So it's always going to be irrevocable. I think a lot of people hear that irrevocable word though and they get scared. You know, they think that we're gonna be tucking assets away in this irrevocable trust and I'm never gonna have access to it. These assets are just going to be locked away. There's actually a lot more power and flexibility that you maintain with this type of trust, believe it or not. A lot of times with an irrevocable trust, we're, if it's your assets and it's your file that we're working on, a lot of times we like to make you what we call the trustee. So you would be the person in charge of the trust. You get to say what's happening with these assets. Um, a big asset that we like to move into a trust is your house, just because that's nice and easy to do. Let's say we do that for you. And at some point in time, you decide that you'd like to maybe sell the house, downsize to a, a one level ranch house, you know, that's easier to maneuver around in, it's easier to take care of. You as trustee can actually sign off on the deed paperwork, selling the current house that's in a trust, and you can actually use those proceeds and purchase a new house. We would walk you through that process if you need us, but technically you, don't need, you can do that all on your own. So there's still a lot of flexibility. If we would have like a bank account in the trust, there's actually ways for you to pull money out of that bank account if you would need it. So there's, there's still ways to, to get around, you know, pulling assets back out of the trust or even, um, you know, moving assets around if you would need to do so. So it's not necessarily locked away. But what happens if at some point in time, maybe you're not in a crisis situation right now, but you know, maybe down the road, you or a loved one's in a crisis situation. Um, what if you, what if that person's not able to make decisions? You know, what if they can't sign off on trust paperwork? Or what if they can't go through the, the application for Medicaid like Kristen was talking about? You know, what happens then? Well, it's, it's really important that you have good estate planning documents ahead, put in place ahead of time. I really say that anybody over the age of 18 should have the basic estate planning documents like powers of attorney and wills. It's so important. We actually say that the power of attorney is the most important estate planning document you can have in place, regardless of your age, as long as you're 18 or over, because you never know what, when something could happen. A power of attorney is a written legal document where you're actually appointing somebody else to be able to make decisions for you. It could be financial decisions, it could be more healthcare related decisions, but somebody else is able to step in and take care of things if you're not able to do that for yourself. Um, 
what happens if you what happens if you don't have a power of attorney in place though maybe you just weren't ever able to um, sit down and get that taken care of what happens then and what if you can't make decisions you know maybe there's an accident maybe you end up with a form of dementia well if you can't make decisions for yourself and you have no power of attorney paperwork in place your loved ones have to actually petition the courts for what's called a guardianship they're basically asking the judge to appoint someone to be able to make decisions for you. It's very similar to a power of attorney, but it's up to the judge to decide who he's, he or she's going to appoint as this person that will be making decisions for you. You know, so obviously the judge may or may appoint somebody that you don't even want to be making decisions for you. So that's not necessarily the greatest situation to be in, but also it, it's costly um, because you're dealing with attorneys, you're dealing with court fees and court costs. Um, it's also time consuming. Dealing with the courts in anything, especially right now with this virus going on, it's, it's so time consuming. Um, it usually takes on average about three months to go through this guardianship process. So not a good situation to be in. It's much easier just to have a power of attorney put in place now, make the decisions for yourself. What about, you know, could you just get online and print off these documents and will they be will they be sufficient for what you need i mean it depends to be honest with you some of these i mean a lot of these general basic powers of attorney that you can print offline you know they have um some of the more common language that's necessary um but what about if you would end up needing some sort of care at some point in time or what about the situations that these documents don't necessarily contemplate um, this is what Kristen and I do all day, every day. So I can tell you that our documents are pretty thorough. Our financial power of attorney alone is about 20 pages long compared to the average. I know uh, just a general durable power of attorney a few years ago it was about three to four pages, you know? So having just a financial power of attorney being 20 pages long, it's, um, these documents have gotten pretty lengthy. It's really, really important that you guys have really good thorough powers of attorney in place. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, let's start by talking about the different powers of attorney. The first is the financial power of attorney. This is the document that authorizes somebody else to be able to make decisions as far as your finances or your assets. This could be the day-to-day -day paying of bills. This could be dealing with real estate, whether you're purchasing, selling, mortgaging, anything like that. Um, this could be talking to the banks or accessing bank accounts, any assets, life insurance, retirement accounts, um, savings accounts, investment accounts, dealing with your financial advisors. Typically, this type of a document is effective as soon as you sign it. So as soon as you sign it, whoever you appoint as your power of attorney, they're able to step in and make decisions for you. Typically, that makes the most sense because what happens, especially right now with, with COVID-19 going around, um, what happens if you're hospitalized and bills need paid or you know things need taken care of as far as your finances go? A lot of these hospitals are not letting anybody else in. So if you need to be hospitalized, you're kind of stuck. Nobody else, can, nobody else can really come in and talk to you. They can't bring you the checkbook, anything like that. So it it, it usually makes sense to allow somebody else to be able to handle that. So you still have capacity, but somebody else is still able to sign off on checks and take care of your finances and things. That's usually how these work. There's also the option of having a springing power of attorney. This means that 
this person that you're appointing in charge of your finances, they cannot actually step in until you are declared as incapacitated. That's another option. Um, typically, we don't like to um, set up your powers of attorney like this. Like I said, you know, what if you, you do have capacity? It's just not convenient for you to take care of your finances. But this is another option if you're just not comfortable with letting somebody else take care of things right now. If this is an option that you're considering, sorry, Kristen, if this is an option that you're considering, then it's really important that you have provisions in here for when um, you should be declared as incapacitated, whether, you're, whether two doctors um, should, should have to say that, whether, what type of doctors those should be. Um, keep in mind though, that sometimes it can be really difficult for your loved ones to be able to get those doctor's opinions, you know, just because, um, especially like two psychiatrists, you know, it might be tough to get you treated by two psychiatrists who are willing to actually give their opinion on whether or not you have capacity, believe it or not. So we've actually run into that situation a couple of times where the, the person to me clearly does not have capacity, but sometimes these doctors just don't really wanna get involved in offering their opinion in these legal matters. So they just try to steer clear. Some language that if you, if you have a financial power of attorney at home, if you guys get nothing else out of this presentation, I would highly recommend that you look to see if your financial power of attorney includes this language. This language is very, very important in case somebody else has to step in and do this type of planning in a crisis situation that, that Kristen's been talking about. So your financial power of attorney should allow for unlimited gifts. Most of the powers of attorney that I see only allow for limited gifts or they only allow for gifts. Those, they, those basically mean the same thing. They both only allow for limited gifts. What happens or what this means is this only allows for gifts up to $15,000 per year total. This is very limiting when we're trying to do um, asset protection planning or crisis planning because a lot of what we're doing, it's moving assets around. It's, um, it could be gifting, it could be gifting to a trust, it could be gifting spouse to spouse, it could be gifting to children, whatever makes the most sense in your situation. It's, it sounds silly when you're married that you can only transfer up to $15,000 from one spouse to another, but that's, how, that's what this means, is that we, can, we can't even take one spouse's name off of the deed, if that makes sense, to try to protect your house. We can't do that unless this unlimited gifting language is in your power of attorney. And don't get me wrong, you know, you probably see that unlimited gifts language and you want to make sure this person can't just gift my assets, you know, to anybody and everybody, right? Your power of attorney actually has a duty to act in your best interest. And gifting your assets away, you know, to themselves or to other people isn't necessarily in your best interest unless we're trying to do, you know, Medicaid planning and it's, it's pat patterned and strategic gifting that really makes sense just so we're protecting assets. The other, the other language that you want to make sure is in your financial power of attorney is the ability to create irrevocable trust. Most powers of attorney that I see, if, if it has any trust language in it, it just says they're able to create trust. With that language, we're only allowed to create revocable trust. As, as I've mentioned already, irrevocable trusts are really important in a lot of situations where we're doing long-term care planning. So if, if you want that to be an option, then your power of attorney should allow for the creation of irrevocable trust. 
some other things that you might want to look for if you think they might be important in your situation, the ability to create special needs trust in case, you know, you're not able to create a special needs trust for a loved one, but it's, it was important to you. If you want your power of attorney to be able to do that, then that language should be in there. Also digital assets. Um, this would, digital assets would be like online banking, email accounts, social media accounts, anything on the computer, any, any sort of account information on the computer. I will tell you that Pennsylvania was, was really late to the game. They were the 48th state to just implement digital asset laws where your, your power of attorney now by law can access a lot of your digital asset information. I think it's still a good idea to keep that in your power of attorney document though, just in case you know, something changes down the road. So they're able to access that digital asset information. The laws changed in about 2014 to 2015. And now what I want you guys to take out of this is that if it's, the laws say that if it's not spelled out in your financial power of attorney that this person's able to do something for you, they're not allowed to do it. That is why our financial power of attorney alone is about 20 pages because I mean, your assets might look one way right now, but we don't know what your assets are going to look like down the road. So our, our standard powers of attorney, they allow for things like, you know, business interests. A lot of us don't have businesses in our names right now, but you know, what if it makes sense down the road? What if you hit the lottery and it makes sense to have a business in your name you, and you're not able to deal with that? You know, you want your power of attorney to be able to step in and deal with things like that. But there's, there's also other things that a, a standard, like the old, like I mentioned, the old three to four page general durable power of attorney, there's going to be a lot missing in that type of a power of attorney versus, you know, what we're using right now. So even with banking, we've had a lot of pushback, not necessarily with our documents, but I've seen a lot of pushback with other documents. These banks don't want to, that they're really looking for the language that allows your power of attorney to do things, simple things like sign off on checks, withdraw from your bank account, uh, close or open a bank account, if that makes sense. So even the simple things, that language really needs to be in there. And you want to make sure that those documents include all the language that's necessary should your situation change in the future. There's other powers of attorney too, though. These are all more healthcare related. The first one's the healthcare power of attorney. All these healthcare documents, these healthcare powers of attorney that we're going to talk about now, there's three of them. These work a little bit different from that financial power of attorney. These are really not effective until you can't express your wishes. So as long as you can, even if you can't verbally state what your healthcare wishes are, as long as you can blink your eyes or squeeze someone's hand to let them know what your wishes are, you have the right to make your own healthcare choices regardless of what these, these powers of attorney say. These documents are really in place just in case at some point in time you're not able to make these decisions. This would allow somebody else to make step in and make these decisions for you at that point in time. The healthcare power of attorney is really just a, a general healthcare power of attorney so that somebody else can make decisions like who your doctors would be, uh, what hospital or facility you'd be treated at, and it's HIPAA compliant so they can access medical records, talk to your doctors so that they can make good decisions. The mental health power of attorney is very similar to that healthcare power of attorney. It's just, this is obviously more specific to mental health treatment. 
Um, this is really great if you have a history of mental illness. It's also great if, in case you or a loved one ends up with a, a form of dementia. So this authorizes your power of attorney to make decisions like who your mental health doctors would be, what mental health facilities you could be treated at if you need that type of treatment. This document also addresses types of treatment that are specific to mental illnesses. So I always use the example of dementia. Dementia really, most forms of dementia don't have a cure. So all we have are labs, trials, medicinal studies, things like that to try to enhance your brain activity as long as possible. A lot of it's not necessarily proven at this point though. A lot of these are religious trials at this point. This document allows, if you can't make, if you can't say yes or no to yourself being in, included in those studies, this document authorizes your power of attorney to be able to say yes or no to you being involved in those types of treatments depending on what the doctors are recommending. So basically, if you don't have this type of document and you end up with a form of dementia where the doctors are, the doctors are recommending that you be involved in this type of study to try to keep your brain activity as lucid as long as possible, if you can't say yes to that study on your own and you don't have this document, that this, this study will not be an option because this is the only document that authorizes your power of attorney to say yes or no to that type of treatment. The last power of attorney that uh, we're going to talk about is the living will. This is what people also call the end of life document. I get lots of questions about this document because I think a lot of people feel that they're going to sign this and then, you know, God forbid they're, you know, they're healthy now, but God forbid they have a heart attack or something. They say, I want, I want to be treated for that, you know, if there's still hope. This document only applies in very limited situations. So this only applies if you, if the doctors are saying you're in a permanent coma, a permanent vegetative state, or you have a terminal condition. So you have about six months or less to live and you're not able to make your own decisions. You don't have capacity at that point in time. Those are all what we call end of life stages, okay? The doctors are saying there's no hope for recovery. If you find yourself in one of those situations, Standard documents, our standard documents at least, typically say that you don't want any artificial life-sustaining measures. You don't want things like breathing machines, feeding tubes, dialysis, chemo, radiation, any of those major forms of treatment because ultimately they're not going to keep you alive. They're not ultimately going to cure whatever the underlying condition is. Now, obviously, these are very personal decisions. Just because those are our, that's what our standard document says, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what everybody wants. Some people do want those forms of treatment. Um, what we do, regardless of what your personal choices are as far as those forms of treatment though, what we do recommend is that you at least allow for what's called artificial hydration. That's just water through an IV so that you can be given pain relieving drugs so that you're comfortable and not suffering. That is our one recommendation. Otherwise, you know, they're completely personal choices. Um, one provision that we usually do include in our living will though is a provision regarding dementia because dementia is not considered a terminal condition in Pennsylvania. So we have a provision in our living will that says if I'm diagnosed with a form of dementia and it reaches those very late stages where I'm not able to swallow on my own, I'm okay with not having a feeding tube inserted at that point in time. Again, a personal decision, but most people do want that provision in there. Um, because unfortunately, what Kristen and I see a lot of times is a lot of our clients that have significant forms of dementia, 
they're physically in fantastic health. It's, it's the mental that, you know, is really deteriorating, unfortunately. So if they're given a feeding tube, they can physically, they can stay alive for a very long period of time on the feeding tube. So that's again, personal choice, but they can, um, the, the cost for that can be pretty, um, they can be pretty high when they're keeping you alive on a feeding tube like that. We kind of covered all the, so who do you appoint in these documents though? I mean, these are really important documents, as I've mentioned, who do you appoint to take over these, uh, these decisions, you know, these financial uh, things that need to be taken care of, but also the healthcare. This is not, there's not a black and white, you know, straightforward answer for everybody. You know, some people, for some people, this is easier. They might have uh, a lot of people want to appoint their spouse. You don't have to just because they're your spouse. But if you do want your spouse to be able to step in, if you can't make these decisions, then you need to appoint your spouse as your power of attorney. Um, it could be a child. It could be more than one child, if that makes sense. It could be a niece, a nephew, a, a really close friend. It could be the neighbor down the street, if you think that really makes sense and you think you trust them and you think they would do a good job. Um, you know, what if you have uh, somebody who you're close with that is more in the banking world? Um, it might make sense to appoint that person as in charge of your finances. If you're comfortable with them and you trust them and you think they would do a good job, you could, you could appoint somebody else who's maybe has more, has more of a healthcare background. You could appoint them in charge of your healthcare decisions. So it doesn't have to be the same person. Uh, some people, especially if they have multiple children, they want to appoint multiple children um, as their powers of attorney, and you can do that, especially now when uh, a lot of our children don't necessarily stay in the area we live in. You know, they could be across the country. It might make sense to appoint multiple children and say whoever's available, they can act. In that situation, it's really important that they're able to get along um, so that they're not doing different things um, and not really getting anywhere. I always say, you know, if you have five children, I don't know that I would appoint all of them and say that they have to make decisions all together because nothing will be done. So I wouldn't recommend that, but you can say, if you appoint more than one person as your power of attorney, you can say that they can either act individually or you can say that they have to act jointly, they have to act together. So this can look a lot of different ways, you know, depending on uh, what you're looking for, who you trust, at the end of the day, though, we really, I recommend that you appoint somebody who is, who you trust and who's responsible, who you think would do a really good job for you. I know it's not always easy for everybody, but it's, it's also important to review your powers of attorney and really your entire estate plan with elder law attorneys from time to time. Um, the laws change, but more often, you know, your life changes and, and the people that you appoint, their lives might change too. What made sense five or 10 years ago might not make sense now. So it's really important that you have your planning reviewed every so often. Um, that's actually something that Kristen and I can do for you. If, if, you're, if your documents are a little bit older and you're just not really sure if there's anything else you should be doing, that's something that Kristen and I can talk to. You know, we're not going to recommend that you update anything that doesn't need updated, but we're also gonna be straightforward with you and let you know you know, this is a little outdated and, and we think that this should be updated because, you know, this could happen or this could happen. So it's, it's 
a lot, usually it, you save a lot more money and it's also a lot easier on your loved ones if you address a lot of these issues earlier and plan for these situations ahead of time. You know, most people, I hope none of you ever need care at any point in time. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of us are going to need care at some point in time, unfortunately, whether it's in-home care, whether it's care in a facility. So planning um, and having a, a plan in place for that type of a situation that really makes things much easier on you and your loved ones. Um, it makes for a much easier transition. Uh, all too often, Kristen and I see situations where there's no planning and it can be really heartbreaking sometimes, you know, your, your loved ones try to step in and do the best job they can, but they're, you know, they're kind of just, there's stuff everywhere and they have no idea even where to begin. So we've talked about powers of attorney. What I didn't mention was powers of attorney are really put in place for while you're living. Then once you pass away, the powers of attorney are really null and void at that point in time. Then it's your last will and testament we're looking at. Trusts are typically put in place while you're living and they're still in place for at least a little bit after you pass away, sometimes much longer. With your last will and testament, most of you probably know that your will says where everything's going to go, all your assets are going to go once you pass away. Usually you appoint an executor or a personal re uh, representative who will administer your estate. They'll pay all your debts and funeral expenses and they'll make sure that your beneficiaries receive whatever it is they're entitled to inherit from your estate. A couple of things that a lot of people don't know that your will can do, um, you can appoint what's called a testamentary guardian. So if you have any minor children or if, you're, if your children have minor children, you might wanna run this past them. Um, you can actually appoint who you'd like to become guardian of your minor children if you and the other parent would pass away. This kind of gives the courts an idea of who you'd like to take over as your, your children's guardian, you know, should anything, God forbid, happen to you and the children's other parents. So that can be really important. Also, if you have any beneficiaries who are minors under the age of 18, we can't actually legally have any inheritance go to minor children. So what you can do in your will <clears throat> is you can actually appoint a custodian. This would be somebody who monitors the minor's, um, the minor's inheritance just until they reach age 18. Most of our clients actually prefer that the, the minor child have a custodian until the age 25 because a lot of people feel that uh, the minors aren't really responsible until at least age 25, but that's completely up to you as long as it's age 18, that's fine by me. It is really important that your will be what's called self-proving. It should have, it should be witnessed by two disinterested witnesses. So no, no children or spouse or anybody who's entitled to inherit. It should be two disinterested witnesses and it should also be notarized. If your will does not meet those requirements, then what could happen is your will could be held up in, in the probate process. A lot of times, you know, if your will's maybe 20 years old, your, your loved ones who are trying to get your will admitted through the probate process, through the court process, they might have to try to track down these witnesses, you know, that were there when you signed your will. If your will's 20 years old, who knows where these people are at at this point in time. So, if you have two witnesses and a notary sign your will at the time you sign it, 
then they can actually skip all that. They don't need to track down any witnesses or notaries or anything like that. So it really makes things much easier for them. Another planning strategy that we recommend for most of our clients um, is what's called a bypass clause. So a lot of you married individuals, you have what's called an I love you will. Basically says, if I pass away, everything goes to my spouse. Nine times out of 10 in, in your situations, we recommend this bypass clause. And what that says is, if I pass away, everything goes to my spouse. But if my spouse is institutionalized in a nursing home, I don't want everything to go to the spouse and then basically going straight to the nursing home, right? Instead, I want to bypass my spouse who's institutionalized in the nursing home and have everything go to my next line of beneficiaries, whether it's my children, nieces, nephews, whoever that would be. So at least the nursing home doesn't get everything. Keep in mind, you can never completely disinherit your spouse in Pennsylvania, not that any of you would ever want to do that, but um, you can never completely disinherit your spouse. Your spouse is always ent entitled to one third of your estate. So one third would have to go to the spouse in the nursing home in that bypass uh, clause section I was talking about. One third would have to go to the spouse in the nursing home, but at least that bypass clause would protect two thirds of your estate. It would go to the next line of benef beneficiaries. It's also really important that you understand that not everything passes through your will. So a lot of people sign wills and they think, you know, that takes care of everything. Everything is going to go exactly as I say it does in the will. That's not necessarily the case. If you have any accounts with beneficiary designations, like life insurance and retirement accounts are big ones, any accounts like that with beneficiary designations, those accounts will be transferred to whoever the beneficiary designations are when you pass away, regardless of what your will says. So it's very important that you update and review your beneficiary designations on those types of accounts from time to time. It doesn't matter what your will says. Um, real estate is, is a little bit different as well. Um, it really depends on how the real estate is titled. But I will tell you that if you hold real estate with your spouse, chances are you hold that as what's called a tenancy by the entirety. Whoever passes away, the, the entire piece of real estate passes to the surviving spouse automatically by law. You actually don't even need a new deed for that to happen but it can work differently in other situations. So keep that in mind. It all depends on how the real estate is titled. Again, it's really important that you, that you look at who your designated beneficiaries are. I'll just tell you really quickly that sometimes, there, there have actually been times when Kristen and I have tried to review beneficiary designations with clients and the people who are appointed as the beneficiaries are not the people uh, who should be appointed. I've actually had one case where one of our clients act, they have no idea who this beneficiary was listed on their account. So obviously the, the information was uh, translated into the, um, the bank's system wrong. Um, so check that from time to time because we wanna make sure that the people you want to receive the money actually receives it. So what happens if you want to work with our office at Steinbacher Goodall and your check? Well, we actually, like I mentioned, we work in teams. Kristen and I are really the team that you would probably be doing the most work with in the state college office. We do that so that we can make sure that everything's taken care of from a legal standpoint, but also from a Medicaid or a government benefit standpoint. Um, we, it's not just about documents, it's about having a really good plan in place. 
um, that's going to work for you now and it should be able to work in the future if anything changes with your health or your, your financial situation. Things look a little bit different right now with COVID. Um, most of our appointments are actually through Zoom calls or telephone calls. We're still doing some in-person signing appointments, but for the most part, this is kind of our new normal. Everything's virtual at this point. Um, I feel like that's kind of the case for everybody, but I can tell you that we're still offering the same um, services. You know, everything is still um, valuable. Everything's still, um, we're still offering the same quality resources. Kristen, feel free to jump in here too. <laughs> um, when we do those in-person signing appointments, um, of course, we're sanitizing, social distancing, using masks um, at all times. So um, we are still following all the regulations as far as the virus goes. And really, we're here for you if anything comes up. We offer free initial consultations. So if you have any concerns that the documents you have in place right now are just not up to par, or if you'd like to have you know, some discussions on what you might be looking at if you or a loved one needs care at some point in time, feel free to reach out to us. You have nothing to lose. Um, you know, there's no obligation to at least come in and get the information from Kristen and I. 